MIT presents A Look at Japan's Evolving Intelligence Efforts, written by Peter Dezikis for MIT News. Once upon a time, from the 1600s through the 1800s, Japan had a spy corps so famous we know their name today the ninjas, intelligence agents serving the ruling Tokugawa family. Over the last 75 years, however, as international spying and espionage has proliferated, Japan has mostly been on the sidelines of this global game. Defeat in World War II and demilitarization afterward meant the Japanese intelligence services were virtually non-existent for decades. Japan's interest in spycraft has returned, however. In addition to a notable military expansion, as of last year, the country has aircraft carriers again. Japan is also ramping up its formal intelligence apparatus as a response to what the country's chief cabinet secretary calls the drastically changing security environment around it. Intelligence is a critical element of any national security strategy, says MIT political scientist Richard Samuels, a leading expert on Japanese politics and foreign policy. It's just a question of how robust and openly robust any country is willing to make it. Examining the status of Japan's intelligence efforts, then, helps us understand Japan's larger strategic outlook and goals. And now, Samuels has written a wide-ranging new history of Japan's intelligent efforts, right up to the present. The book, Special Duty, A History of the Japanese Intelligence Community, is being published by Cornell University Press. Japan didn't have a comprehensive intelligence capability, but they're heading in that direction, says Samuels who is the director of the Center for International Studies and the Ford International Professor of Political Science at MIT. As firm as Japan's taboo on military and intelligence activity once was, he adds, that constraint is coming undone. Aside from the ninjas, who focused on domestic affairs, Japan's international intelligence efforts have seen a few distinct phases. A patchy early period, a big buildup before World War II, the dismantling of the system under the post-war U.S. occupation, and, especially during the current decade, a restoration of intelligence capabilities. Famously, Japan was closed off to much of the rest of the world until the late 19th century. It did not formally pursue international intelligence activities until the late 1860s. By the early 1900s, Japanese agents had found some success. They decoded Russian cables in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05 and cut off Russian raids during the conflict. But, as Samuels details in the book, during this period, Japan heavily relied on a colorful array of spies and agents working on an unofficial basis, an arrangement that gave the country plausible deniability in case these operatives were caught. There was an interesting reliance upon scoundrels, ruffians, and freelance agents, Samuels says. Some of these figures were quite successful. One agent, Ushida Ryohei, found an espionage group, the Amor River Society, also sometimes called the Black Dragon Society, which opened its own training school, created Japan's best battlefield maps, and conducted all manner of operations meant to limit Russian expansion. In the 1930s, another undercover agent, Doihara Kenji, became so successful at creating pro-Japanese local governments in northern China that he became known as Lawrence of Manchuria. Meanwhile, Japan's official intelligence units had a chronic lack of coordination. They divided along military branches and between military and diplomatic bureaucracies. Still, in the decades before World War II, Japan leveraged some existing strengths in the study of foreign cultures. 
The Japanese invented area studies before we did, said Samuels, and used technology advances to make huge strides in information gathering. They had strengths, they had weaknesses. They had official intelligence, they had non-official intelligence. But overall, that was a period of great growth in their intelligence capability, Samuel says. That, of course, comes to a crashing halt at the end of the war, when the entire military apparatus was taken down. So there was this period immediately after the war where there was no formal intelligence. Japan's subsequent post-war political reorientation toward the U.S. created many advantages for the country, but was simultaneously a source of frustration to some. The country became an economic powerhouse while lacking the same covert capabilities as other countries. The Cold War was a period in which many Japanese in the intelligence world resented having to accommodate to American power in the intelligence world and resented it. They had economic intelligence capability. They were very good at doing foreign economic analysis and were all over the world, but they were underperforming on the diplomatic and military fronts, says Samuels. In his book, Special Duty, Samuels suggests three main reasons why any country reforms its intelligence services. Shifts in the strategic environment, technological innovations, and intelligent failures. The first of these seems principally responsible for the current revival of Japan's intelligence operations. As Samuels notes, some Japanese officials wanted to change the country's intelligence structure during the 1980s, to little avail. The end of the Cold War and the more complicated geopolitical map that resulted provided a more compelling rationale for doing so, without producing many tangible results. Instead, more recent events in Asia have had a much bigger impact in Japan, namely North Korean missile testing and China's massive surge in economic and military power. In 2005, Samuels notes Japan's GDP was still twice that of China. A decade later, China's economy was two and a half times as large as Japan's, and its military budget was twice as big. U.S. power relative to China has also declined. Those developments have altered Japanese security priorities. There's been a Japanese pivot in Asia, Samuels notes. That's really very important. Moreover, he adds, from the Japanese perspective, the question about China is obvious. Is its rise going to be disjunctive or is it going to be stabilizing? These regional changes have led Japan to chart the course of greater confidence in foreign policy, reflecting in its growing intelligence function. Since 2013 in particular, after Prime Minister Shinzo Abe took office for a second time, Japan has built up its own intelligence function, as never before, making operations more unified and better supported. Japan still coordinates extensively with the U.S. in some areas of intelligence, but is also taking intelligence matters into its own hands, in a way not seen for several decades. As Samuels notes, Japan's increasing foreign policy independence is also supported by voters. Japanese public opinion has changed. They see the issues now. They talk about it. Used to be you couldn't talk about the intelligence in polite company. But people talk about it now, and they're much more willing to go forward, says Samuels. Special duty has been praised by other scholars in the field of Japanese security studies and foreign policy. Sheila Smith of the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington calls it a truly wonderful book that offers much-needed insight to academics and policymakers alike as they seek to understand the changes in Japan's security choices. By looking at intelligence issues this way, Samuels has also traced larger contours in Japanese history. First, an opening up to the world, then 
the alignment with the U.S. and the post-war world, and now a move toward greater capabilities. On the intelligence front, those capabilities include enhanced analysis and streamlined relations across units, heading toward the full spectrum of functions seen in other major states. It's been the assumption that the Japanese just don't do intelligence activities, except economics, Samuels reflects. Well, I hope after people see this book, they will understand that's no longer the case, and it hasn't been for some time. Thanks for listening. You can find more audio articles from MIT on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.